identity crisis. <laughs> Come on now. Think about it. Think about it. Uh, let me say this. <clears throat> I don't know what bothers me more. Um, the fact that someone could steal my identity without me knowing it and make thousands of dollars. I don't know if that bothers me or the fact that I have my identity and I haven't been able to figure out how to make thousands of dollars with it yet. It's amazing somebody else could do it, but I can't. Uh, hey, we're in week five of this series called Revival. Uh, the Hebrew word that we've really been drawing from for revive or revival is this. And come on, I, I'm not going to ask you to say it with a Hebrew. In fact, uh, Moriah was trying to help me say it, and it just sounded like I was trying to hock up a loogie. And I said, I'm just sticking with the redneck way of saying this word. Bring that up for me, please. And if you've been here, say this with me. Ready? Hey, say it. Hayah. Hiya. Is that, is that close, bro? I don't see her. Hiya. Hiya. Uh, anyway, here's, here's the, what it means to live, to cause to live, to stir up or rekindle as a fire, to recover from a state of neglect, obscurity, or depression, to refresh with joy or hope. The middle of that definition is where I really want to lean in today. To recover from a state of neglect, obscurity, or depression. I believe the biggest problem our nation is facing right now. The biggest problem our communities, our schools, our children are facing right now. Here's the biggest problem, an identity problem. And identity. The more and more I see, the more and more I'm convinced that we have been fed so many lies. Lies about our sexuality, about our addictions, our health, our gender, our education, our weight, our looks. We've been fed so many lies that in the process, we've become to take those on as our identity. Not knowing they were lies, we've taken them on. And you may push back and say, well, Kelly, I, I know exactly who I am. And again, I say, no, you, you think that's who you are because of lives that, have been, lives that have been spoken over you and into you that were so subtle that you believe them. See, here's, I'm convinced of this. There are two questions. Every person in this room, every person online, two questions that everybody will get asked. That first question is this, who are you? Jesus will ask that question, who are you? Now, if you were to ask me, Kelly, who are you? On a random day, I might say, well, I am Kelly, the husband to Denise. I am the father to April, Kennedy, Gunner, Sheridan, and Zion. I am the papa to Eliana, Ezra, Juno, Sonny, and Shepherd. I'm a pastor, a brother, a son, friend. But if I let my guard down for a moment and was really honest, there are more days than not that it might sound something like this. I'm Kelly, insecure, ill-equipped, not qualified, a reject, a misfit. I'm lonely, broken, 
lost. Who are you? Who are you? The second question I believe Jesus is going to ask everybody in this room is this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This question gets brought up in Matthew 16. Um, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, religious teachers, they're coming to Jesus demanding a sign. Prove to us you are who you say you are. And Jesus pretty much says, I don't have anything to prove to you. I, I know exactly who I am. And he kind of just walks away and leaves it with them. And then a couple of verses later, he looks at his disciples and gives them a warning. He, he says, guys, watch out. Beware the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are trying to poison and infect this movement. Then down in verse 13, we're still sitting around a fire. And Jesus looks at his, at his disciples and asks them this question. Hey, guys, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? The people think the same thing as the Pharisees and the Sadducees think. Who, who do people? And so they start throwing out names. Hey, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Jesus listens. And then he gets quiet and he looks at them. Okay, enough of that. Let me ask you this. Who do you say that I am? Because let me tell you, church. At the end of the day, what's important is not, what's, not who somebody else thinks Jesus is. It's not who grandpa, grandma, mom, and dad, who they think Jesus is. It's not a matter. It, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether somebody even thinks Jesus is real or not. What matters is who do you say that he is? Who do you believe that he is? And here's my point, and I think this is what Jesus knew and was trying to get at, is this, if you're taking notes, who I am flows out of knowing whose I am. Are you hearing me? Knowing whose I am will have an effect on everything I do, decisions that I make. And I believe there are those here today, you've forgotten who you really are, but also whose you really are. You've allowed other things to define you and give you your identity. You've allowed addiction to define you, a divorce to define you, a police record, an education. And you've allowed those things to give you your identity. And I believe today God wants to remind you who you are and whose you are. I honestly believe that it, this is the most important message I have preached so far, even this year. Not just in this series. Because I'm telling you, if we can get this, revival will come to your family and to you. See, what I do, how I live my life, it flows out of who I believe I am. Are you hearing me? And so I believe there are three weapons that the enemy uses against our identity to attack our identity. And, and I believe, listen, as we go through these, I, I don't believe, I know these are going to hit 90% of us, myself included. The first weapon he uses, soul wounds. Soul wounds. 
Well, what are you talking about? Here's a great definition of what a soul wound is. It's a deep inner sense that there is a core part of you that is unlovable, unacceptable, and unwanted. It's a belief that there is part of you that just doesn't measure up. And that if people knew who you really were, if they could see past the mask, the facade, that they would walk away from you and reject you. Some of you, I can tell already, maybe I've got a soul wound. See, a soul wound is a hurt and a pain that you can't see it with the human eyes. The mind can't explain it, but you still feel it. You internalize it. You even memorize those wounds. And although soul wounds can be inflicted at any age of life, usually they get inflicted in childhood. See, rejection, not just rejection. Let me say this. Perceived, even perceived rejection. Perceived it's one of the greatest weapons used to inflict a soul wound on us. Rejection, perceived rejection, it can make you feel unwanted, unloved, unappreciated, abandoned, abused, mistreated. And they can be inflicted by a parent, a step-parent, a sibling, a teacher, a boss, a pastor, a friend. They can be inflicted by bullying, verbal, physically, uh, uh, abuse, sexual abuse. They can be inflicted. And here's why we're talking about this. Because it is the biggest weapon that our enemy uses to steal our identity, our God-given identity. And see, while the pain of those things is very real, it isn't the pain of the wound itself that keeps you stuck. Listen very close. It's how the enemy gets you to interpret that pain. It's how he gets you to interpret what happened to you, why it happened to you. Let me give you an example of how the enemy, he, I'm telling you, he, he is great at manipulating things that happened to us and using them to his advantage. Like, let's say you were young, a parent walks out on you. Here's how the enemy will use that. He'll come in, begin to whisper this. It's your fault. If you had been better, if you had behaved, if you hadn't acted out, if you had got better grades, then they would have never left your family. And he begins to whisper those. He, he even whispers, like he'll use it against someone that's been abused or molested. What he'll come in after that is say things like, you deserved it. You were asking for it. You set yourself up for it. You shouldn't have been in that place anyway. Now, don't you can't trust anybody. And those are just a couple of the ways the enemy will use things that happen to us. But here's where it gets dangerous. Because when the enemy starts whispering those lies, if in that moment you agree with the lie, even if you do not know it's a lie, in that moment if you agree with that lie, what you're doing is you're creating an open door for the enemy to be able to come in and use that lie to form, shape, and tell you how to live the rest of your life. It's dangerous. 
But here's a great promise from Psalms 147.3. God heals the wounds of every shattered heart. Man. The second weapon he uses against their identity. Core lies. How many know the enemy's weapon of choice is lying? He's really, really good at it. Uh, you know that, don't you? I mean, he, when I say really good at it, like the, the, some say that like the, the father of blues, the father of rock and roll, king of rock and roll, well, you, they get that name for a reason. Well, he gets the name father of lies for a reason. And when Jesus describes him, he doesn't pull any punches. Look at eight, uh, John 8, 44. This is what he says about it. He's been a murderer right from the start. He never stood with the truth, for he's full of nothing but lies. In fact, lying is his native tongue. He is a master of deception and the father of lies. He's really good at it. Really good at it. See, why, why does Satan use lying? Why does he come to us and whisper things in our air because I'm going to tell you almost every battle for freedom in your life and you becoming who God called you to be takes place right here you want to know, you want to know what core lies are here's what core lie is it's an inaccurate fact that just has enough truth in it to make you believe it Core lies are lies that attack and undermine who God says you are. They're lies that Satan uses to keep you from becoming the man, the woman that God created and redeemed you to be. Core lies. And these lies become so common to us that they, instead of lies, they become truth to us. Our truth. And we don't even realize it. I believe we're seeing man. Let me go ahead. Let me, I, I'm not trying to offend anyone with this next part. But I believe this. I believe we're seeing the enemy in a full, all-out assault right now on our children and in this generation with lies. Lies that are getting whispered in the minds of our children about their sexuality about their gender, and, and I'm going to tell you this, the evil in this world is doing his best to make anyone that speaks against it look like they're crazy or phobic. Here's what I mean. This is how good the enemy is at this, because I, I will hear someone fighting for some of these rights, and I'll think, how are you not seeing this? And here's what I mean. It's funny to me that We've deemed you're not mentally able to handle alcohol until you're 21. So you cannot drink alcohol person until you're 21. We've deemed you're not mentally ready to join the armed forces until you're 18. Yet you want to tell me that a 10, 11, 12-year-old has the mental capacity to mutilate their body. It does not make sense because there is not any logic because he is the father of lies. And what's happened is a child believed a core lie early in life. 
And not only that, they've had a parent or somebody else reinforce that lie in them. See, I had a person, been two or three years ago, whenever, whenever the uh, pronoun thing started, I'm not sure when that was, three years ago, four years ago, had a, had a, had a mom get mad at me because I refused, and, and I wasn't mean about it, to address her daughter by her pronouns. And she asked me why. And I, I mean, I was, honestly, I was very nice. I said, here's why. I refuse to see your daughter any other way than how God sees her. And I refuse to reinforce the lies of the enemy on her life. So I will not use, listen, I, I love her. But, listen, I want to tell some, if you've got somebody telling me they're a, they're, they're a, uh, an elephant, I'm going to be loving enough to say, listen, listen, bro, come on. You're big, but you're not an elephant. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the enemy is working overtime. Because if he could steal the identity of this generation, there's no hope for the next generation. He's at work. And I believe core lies have three target areas that the enemy comes at. The first one is this, lies about God. He tells us lies about God. Here's what it means. Lies that make you question the character of God. Not, not really lies that he exists or doesn't exist. Just that makes you question his character. Like, God can't be trusted. Uh, God doesn't love you. How could he? God is good to others. Why not you? Why is God blessing them? God's not blessing you. Is it something you've done? Probably something you've done. You just weren't good enough. God is disappointed in you. And he begins to tell us lies about God. The second lies he tells us is lies about ourselves. About ourselves. And those lies begin to blur and alter our, percep our, our perception of our actual value. Are you, are you hearing me? How important, how valuable we really are, who we are. They tell us who we are and tell us who we're not. And they usually come with these negative I am or I am not statements. I'm not good enough. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm not important. I'm unlovable. I'm all alone. I'm unwanted. I'm a mistake. I'm a failure. I'm convinced that the self-worth and self-image of way too many people here have been based on lies that have been planted in their minds by the enemy. Third target of core lies. Lies about people. I, I've never seen this so rampant as I have over the past few months. It's like the enemy's been working overtime getting us to believe lies about other people. You see, you, that, it doesn't matter if it's a lie. Once it's posted on social media... perception of what people it doesn't matter if it's true or not and, and, and here's I believe the reason he wants you to not trust anybody because he doesn't want you to make connections with anybody he wants you to keep everybody at a distance he wants you cynical 
Come on. He wants you cynical, afraid of being hurt, afraid of being let down or misused. Why? Because when we feel that way, we automatically go into protection mode. No, no, nobody gets in my circle. And here's the thing about soul wounds. Soul wounds are core lies that are the main ingredients for strongholds. Now, I want to tell you what strongholds are. See if this sounds familiar. A stronghold is an entrenched pattern of thinking or behavior that we believe cannot ever change. It's an entrenched pattern of thinking, behaviors that we believe this, this will never change. It's just the way it is. It's the way I'm always going to be. You may know how you build strongholds, how the enemy builds strongholds. By building and by believing one lie at a time. I pretty much had this message finished um, uh, toward the end of the week. It was Saturday yesterday morning I came in here. And, uh, and I thought, man, I need to do my daily Bible reading. And so I began, opened up my Bible to our daily Bible reading that we're doing as a, a church. A lot of you are in that. And, and, man, I began to read this story that I have read over and over again. And Holy Spirit began to speak to me in a different way about this story. I've preached this story. I've talked about this story several times. But God began to show me some different things as it relates to identity. The story's found in Judges chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6 uh, opens uh, with, with, with something that gets said over and over. And if you're reading this plan with us, you hear it over and over, where it says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you hear it over and over, and you think, good Lord, will you ever learn? And then I think, Kelly, will you ever learn? Come on. And so God allows the Midianites to overpower them. Look, look, look what verse 2 says. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, and the what? Strongholds. Because of their enemy, they found themselves living in strongholds. Israel repents, cries out to God, and God goes looking for an unlikely hero. And God sends an angel of the Lord to revive Gideon's God-given identity. See, this is not something new. It was in Gideon. It just been buried deep. And so when the angel of the Lord, I love this, because when the angel of the Lord speaks up, uh, Gideon is, uh, is threshing uh, wheat in a wine press, and he's down there because the enemy's all around. He's trying to stay down there to keep it low where they won't come and steal the food, won't come and steal that. And, God, and this angel shows up, and here's what he says, the first words to Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I think Gideon's like, because Gideon responds to a question, with, to God with a question, almost with a little attitude, oh yeah, if God's with me, why are our enemies taking us over? If God's with us, why, why are we just hearing about the miracles in the past? Why are we not seeing them this day? Come on, can anybody relate? 
Anybody been there? Oh, yeah, God's for me. Come on. That's what I love about the Bible. It's just real, raw, and honest. Well, then after that, you know, God says, hey, hey, you're a mighty warrior. God is wanting to revive that God-given identity in you. And here is Gideon's response. How can I save Israel? My family is the weakest among our people, and I am the least in the family. The Hebrew word there that gets, re- that gets least gets replaced for, that least, when he says I'm the least, it literally means I'm insignificant. The angel said, mighty warning, he said, you're going to save Israel. He says, do you know who my family is? My family is worthless, and I'm even worse than they are. Let me ask you, why, why did Gideon respond that way? Because I don't think any child grows up thinking their family is worthless. I, I mean, I grew up with, with the Goins name. Whether it was right or not, I grew up thinking the Goinses were the baddest family in Ray County. That's the way I grew up. I heard stories about my uncles fighting and the whipping. I mean, my dad was a Golden Glove champion. I mean, I heard these stories. And my cousins, I wasn't the biggest of the cousins. But if we were going to fight, I was going with them. Because in that moment, no matter my size, I thought I could whip anybody. As a goings, I didn't need alcohol to be 10 foot tall and bulletproof. It was just part of my DNA, stupid. But I grew up with that about my family. So where does this mindset come from Gideon? I believe it comes from years and years of him being told by their people, your family is the weakest. They bring nothing to the table. And you, you are so insignificant, you're nothing. And who knows, was it his siblings, was it bullies, cousins? That told him, hey, you're the weakest of us all. And here's the thing. Those core lies that God spoke over Gideon became a stronghold in his life. And that's why we find him hiding out in a wine press, threshing wheat. And I think when the angel spoke that truth over good Gideon's life, Gideon couldn't receive it because that truth had been squashed down so far to the point where anything like that, there is no way I resemble anything like a mighty warrior. And so he's like, he's talking to this guy, this Lord, this angel of the Lord, and I still think he doesn't think this is real. Because he says, hey, I'm going to need a sign. Um, will you stay here? Uh, I'm going to go prepare something to eat, and I'll come back. I'm thinking, he's thinking, man, is this real? Was that really wheat I was threshing down in there? Was it mushroom? Was it something else? Because what this guy's saying is crazy. And so he goes off. I don't know how long it takes to kill a goat, clean it, cook it. I would say it takes a long time. I don't know. Maybe he's seasoned at that. Ben would know. How many goats have you killed, Ben? Uh, 
How many goats have you killed this morning? How many, you baby goat killer? How, no, no, no. But, <laughs> he's killed more deer than goats, I would say. In fact, I'd say you probably never killed a goat. Anyway, let's, we're getting off base here. You ever, you ever killed a pig? No, my dad has. That's a great story. Anyway, um, ADD, man, I'm telling you. So he's down there. He does all that. And then on top of that, he's cooking bread. I'm, I'm going to estimate two hours. I think that's a fair estimate. Two hours later, he comes back and says, crap, he really is here. Sits down, feeds this guy, and, and the angel of God's there. And, and, then, and then God shows up himself in verse 23 and says this, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. See, that angel of the Lord spoke a truth that was unrecognizable to Gideon. Because years of him being told he was something else, he couldn't recognize it. Look at this, verses 25 and 26. That night the Lord said to him, to Gideon, take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal, cut down the asherah that is beside it, and get this, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of what? Build an altar. God on top of the stronghold that had been built. See, a stronghold of lies is being torn down in Gideon's life. And his identity has been being, being built back up one truth at a time. But can I tell you this is not a one and done thing? I wish it was a one and done thing. I wish, bam, we get prayed over and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think different. I mean, it's, it's all brand. Some people may experience that in me. Not so much. I'm in this game for 30-plus years, and I still think, why did I do that? Come on, anybody relate? The rest of you are liars. Anyway, let's go on. Uh, it's not a one-and-done thing. After the encounter with an angel of God, and then God himself speaks to him, look what it says, verse 27. So Gideon did what God told him to. He took ten men of his service, did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. He sat and talked with an angel. Then God spoke to him. What more do you need, Gideon? Come on, anybody. Uh, I mean, how much more reinforcement do you need? But here's the thing. Strongholds that have been built lie upon lie upon lie. They get buried deep. And it's going to take more than one truth spoken over you to get down to who you really are. The next morning, the men of the city get up. They come out and they see that the altar of Baal has been torn down. The Asherah pole has been torn down. And so they go to get. They find out that Gideon did this. They go to his house. They open up. Uh, Joash, uh, Gideon's dad, answers the door. And look at verse 30. The people of the town demanded, Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Joash is like, are you serious now? You're, you're going to fight for Baal. 
And then he lets them know how serious he is in 30. He says, whoever fights for him, for Baal, shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Let me ask you, does that sound like someone that's weak? And I think when he heard his father speak like that, something began to stir in him. I've heard my family's weak. That doesn't sound like a weak man. And if, if that was a lie, what else is a lie that they've said about me and my family? What else is a lie? But again, strongholds are called strongholds for a reason. Look what happens next, verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Akites, uh, or eastern peoples, joined forces and crossed over the Jordan, camped in the valley of Jezreel. Here's what's happening. Gideon and his tribe, his tribe's enemies, all their enemies, they're lining up over there where they can see them, let them know, oh, we're coming for you. We're coming after you. But I love the way the ESV says this next part. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed. Gideon. Oh man, I love that. And when you read this story, it goes on to say that he sound, Gideon sounded the trumpet and the Abizarite of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, they came out to fight with Gideon. When you read on, you find that there's about, he's got about 30,000 men ready to fight with him. If you're Gideon, 30,000, ready to follow me? You would think your identity in God is sealed. I'm clothed in the Spirit of God. I know I'm a man of God. God's created me for the purpose. This is the moment that the man of God that's been buried for so long under these core lives is coming to life. So what does Gideon do? Verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, I'm kind of reminding you, God. Look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground around it is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Guess what happens? Gideon wakes up. The wool is soaking wet while the ground around it is, is dry. What more evidence do you need, Gideon? You've laid it out. You wanted to believe. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's get it, Gideon. And I think that's part of us. Because we want to believe. When we hear somebody say, you don't have to live this way, we want to believe that. We want to believe that we really can't change. We really want to believe there's purpose in our life. Come on. We really want to believe it. The lies, man, are so strong. And they're still whispering in Gideon's ear because he lays that fleece out before God. He sees it done. Then look at this. Then Gideon said to God, uh, don't, don't be angry with me, God. Um, let me ask you one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, let's reverse it. Let the fleece be dry and the ground be soaking wet. You know, somewhere in your mind, you're thinking, Gideon's hoping, please, don't let it happen. Let me be wrong. I don't really want to fight. I don't really want to go do this. Guess what? He wakes up next morning. 
It's done. It's done. And when you read the rest of this story, in the very next chapter, we find Gideon looking over this, his army of fighting, 30,000 fighting men. And you've got to think, yes, this is who I am. I believe it, God. I believe it. That's what we want to think, right? And he's looking, 30,000 men, and he's feeling really good about himself. And God says, hey, hey, Gideon, you've got too many men. If I'm fighting, I don't think there is a term as too many men with me. A lot of men means one less chance of me getting hit with an arrow, an axe, a bullet, or anything. More men means more chances for us to win this fight. And so, but he said, oh, okay, God. He dismisses 20,000 of those 30. He's down to 10,000 men. And he's like, ah, 10,000? God, if I'm honest, I'd rather have 30. And God says, well, let me tell you, you still got too many. What's God doing here? I believe, yes, God's wanting to show Gideon and these people that it's not them that they're doing. But I believe there's something deeper. I believe God is saying, man, you've had so many lies talked about you. Your real identity is buried so deep that I want to show you exactly who you are when you surrender to me. So they end up with 300. 300 men. And God is at work laying truth upon truth in Gideon. And God was getting ready to speak another truth in Gideon. And again, I've read this, but man, for some reason, this just jumped out to me. Judges 7, verses 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. Go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. I'm going to use you in a way, Gideon, that you never thought possible. You've been brought up thinking that you would never be, you weren't built for anything great. I'm about to show you something different. But get this, God, God knows this. He says, but if you're afraid to attack, I want you to go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and, and I want you to listen to what they're saying. Casey, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, afterward, you're going to be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, what does that tell us? That he and Pearl went. He's scared. God said, if you're afraid, take Pearl with you. Take him with you. And he does. So he and Pearl, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples that settled in the valley, thick as locusts. That means there's a lot of people. And get this, their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. If I'm Gideon, I'm like, did you send me down here to encourage me or discourage me? I've got 300 men. Not even my best. And here, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. As Gideon arrived, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend a dream he had. I had a dream, he was saying, uh, 
round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. At this moment, I feel like God leaned in and said, Gideon, all those years you were told you were worthless. You were insignificant. Listen to what the enemy is saying about you. When Gideon... When Gideon heard the dream and interpretation, or his friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. I think Gideon's like, what? I've been told my whole life I'm insignificant. Yet the enemy is more afraid of me. I I don't think we understand how afraid the enemy is of us realizing our true identity in God. I think if we were allowed at the enemy's camp for a time, and we would hear somebody say, hey, 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 what this means is God is about to do something. That Harvey Brown, you may think he's just a short, bald guy. But there's more in him, and it's about to come out. It's like a lying way. I'm telling you, and, and that at Wayne, it's about to come. They may see you and perceive you as a kind of a timid guy, but God said, no, I'm about to show you your true identity. Are you hearing me, church? There's some of you, you've been, there's words been spoke over you so long that you've become to believe them. But if you could only see how God sees you and what he put inside you. Well, I'm, I got to get, I got to get going. Anyway, when Gideon heard that, he bowed and worshiped. <laughs> third, third weapon. I think that's important, but I ain't got time to elaborate. Let's move on. Generational sin, if I could get Bob to come up. The third weapon. You ever heard somebody say something like, or you said it, just runs in the family. Just runs in the family. Deuteronomy 5 contains verses that, if I'm honest, I struggle with. Look at verse, starting with verse 8. God says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. That part doesn't bother me. It's the next part. I lay the sins of the parents. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. This is a warning going on here. That what happens in one generation has a way of repeating itself in other generations. Let me make it clear. The decisions we are making right now It's not just affecting us. It's going to affect our children, our grandchildren, their children, their children on down the line. It's not just affecting us. 
things that don't get dealt with right now? Listen, things, that, things like addiction, dysfunction, obesity, sins, laziness, jumping from one job to another, jumping from one relationship to another, those things, if they are not dealt with, they get passed down, and you watch your kids do the exact same thing you did. Things handed down to us by our parents or our grandparents, they get so ingrained in us. give you an example, like children who grow up in homes where one of the parents, at least one of the persons, has uncontrollable anger, they're more likely to develop that themselves. Children whose parents struggle with alcoholism or addictions seem to have this predisposition to also struggle it, struggle with it themselves. Children who grow up in families where it's nothing to lie, having trouble telling the truth themselves I think you get the point that's why man when I look over people like Erica and Bradley I'm so thankful that you said not not my kid not my kid I see Chris Gross and his family he said, not, not my kid, grandkids. No more stops with me. Somehow those things get ingrained in us. It's almost like dysfunction from our family has been hardwired into us. And it goes on year after year, generation after generation. Until someone finally makes a decision, no more. I'm breaking free. There's some of you that need to make that decision today. You need to break free. And now I'm telling you, because if you don't, you're going to watch someone in your family line repeat the mistakes you made. I'm telling you, some of you, you're going to have to answer this question Do I love my kid? more than I love this sin? Do I love my marriage more than I love this cycle that I see myself in? See, it's not enough to try to keep it hidden or manageable. At some point, you're going to have to take a stand and say, the suffering, the shame, the guilt, the addiction, the brokenness, it stops here and it stops now. You've got to make that. And say, I know that passage seems fair. That, that, that the punishment would go down to the sin. Or the sin would go down to the third and fourth generation. But don't miss what he ends with. The promise he ends with. Verse 10. But I lavish love to a thousand generation. God may punish sin to the third and fourth. But the ninth, tenth, thousand generations. He is showing unfailing love. Go back to Gideon really quick. When you read the rest of the story about Gideon and the 300 men, it is incredible what they do. I mean, it is. What happened? 
What happened that enabled Gideon Gideon to go from hiding in a wine press to leading as a warrior? I mean, his identity changed so much to where a group of people that used to say, you are the weakest family, you are, and, and you're, you are insignificant. It goes from that to this. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us. Be our king, you, your son, and your grandson. How does it go from insignificant to now king material, war, warrior material? And not just him. This is so important. Because he didn't say, Gideon be our king. You, your son, your grandson. What Gideon did in regaining his identity began to shape his family from that point out. Man, I hope you're hearing me. A family that was called the weak, the weakest now king material. Why? How? Because they allowed a stronghold to be broken off their life by applying one truth of God at a time. If you're stuck, you're in a pattern or cycle of addiction or sin or brokenness, and you've seen this function in your life, in your family, can I tell you, God wants to set you free. Don't believe the lie that this is just how family is. This is just the way it's supposed to be or this is just who you are. Don't believe that lie. Don't allow that core lie to attach itself to you. And some of you, it's already attached, but today God wants to rip it from you. So how do I revive that identity? Can I tell you the truth? It has nothing to do with you doing more or trying harder. It has more to do with about receiving what Jesus has already done. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And he said this, on the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfection for our imperfection, his obedience for our disobedience, his strength for our weakness, his intimacy with the Father for our distance from God the Father, his blessing for our curse, his righteousness for our sin, his wholeness for our brokenness, and his life for our death. So it's not about doing more. It's about receiving what Jesus has already done. You need to hear this. On the cross where it says Jesus took our sin, that's our, that was our identity. On the cross, Jesus took our identity as sinner, as broken, as gay, lesbian, trans, addict, divorcee, abandoned, depressed, angry, victim. On the cross, he took our identity and gave us his. I want to believe it, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I I love this promise in Isaiah 43, 18, 19. Verse 18 says this. Forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. How about we close the books on 2020? 
2022 and 2023 up to this point. We close the books on that. How about we close the books on the past decade of your life? Close the books on the pain, the hurt, the things you've been through. How about we close the books on those things, the trauma? Because here's what I know. God is more interested in your future than he is in your past. The next verse, verse 19, he says this. Be alert, be present. I'm about to do something brand new. He says, listen, close your ears to the lies. Can you hear it? It's bursting out. Can you see it? There it is. I'm making a road through the wilderness, rivers in the dry wasteland. See, here's the truth. There's some of you, you don't need a reviving of an identity. You just need a new, brand new identity. You've been walking around in a wasteland, and God says, I'm about to cut a road through it to show you the way back home. I'm about to bring, where you were dry, I'm about to bring rivers into that area. See, here's the thing about the past. Learn from the past, but don't live there. Are you hearing me? Learn from it. Don't live there. So I'll go back to the first question. Who are you? Man, I called my daughter this morning, Kennedy. I knew her and Tyler were heading down to Georgia to to lead worship down there. And, And I'm praying, and I feel like God says, call Kennedy and pray for her and Tyler. And I was like, I will at the end of when we're done. And I just couldn't shake it. And so I was like, okay, God called them and I prayed with them hung up immediately I get a phone call back from Kennedy hey we want to return the favor dad and they began to pray over me and one of the things Kennedy said stuck out to me she said God I'm so thankful because I know what I'm doing today I'm standing on the shoulders of my dad who's standing on the shoulders of his dad leaving a legacy for our kids to stand on their shoulders out of the dysfunction that we were in at one time but they're standing above it because of choices we've made decisions we've made right now and I'm closing I'm closing if I get Sheridan to come on up wherever she's at Um, Denise and I we were in Montana um, a couple months ago we got there and we rented a car and we were driving to where we were staying in uh, old, old uh, West, West Yellowstone about two hours uh, with, with uh, it being dark and everything uh, when we started going through the mountains, we were trying to, we, we turned on a radio station, found one that came in, we're driving. Anybody, anybody remember the time before you had MP3s and, and uh, serious radio where you, you actually had to turn the dial and get, get that right frequency? And then at one point, even on this trip, we're going, well, the radio station we were listening to started 
going in and out and started competing with another radio station. At one moment, I'm listening to Christian. Next moment, I'm listening to country. And I like them both. So, But I, I pick a song. Pick a, have we got a station that plays both country and Christian? I don't know. But it's going back and forth. These two frequencies were competing against each other. Do you know which frequency won out? The one that I was heading toward. The one I was going toward. The frequency that's going to win out in your life, that is going to tell you lies or truth, is the one that you're moving toward. Are you hearing me? The one that you're moving toward. You keep moving toward the lies. You will never find out who God created you to be. But you've got to start moving toward the truth. And here's the thing. When we started moving, we were going through those mountains. That station, they were battling. They were battling. Well, then it got to a little bit where it was more this station than that station. And then to a, finally to a point where this station was clear and we could hear it. And that's the way our walk with God is. We're used to lies and it's hard to hear God's truth. But the more we go in that direction, it still fades in, fades in. But if we keep moving, all of a sudden it becomes so 